So please remain standing for the reading from God's Word this morning from Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And let's pray once again for the Lord to give us eyes to see his glory in his word. So, Father, we do echo what we just sang. Where else can we go? The only way of blessing, of life, of joy, of what we desire is in your word. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see it, for the flesh cannot see the things of the Spirit. So we need your help. We know that we do not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from you. So feed us this day and show us Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, have you ever come to a point in your Bible reading uh, when you open the day's chapter and there lies before you the daunting genealogy? I mean, after starting it, have you ever had to go back to the beginning because halfway through you realize your eyes were seeing the list of names, but your mind was seeing your to-do list, right? Because it's hard enough to keep track of your own family line and tree, let alone other people's, with weird names that are really hard to pronounce. And then have you ever wondered, and then had to go back again to the beginning because you were wondering why are these lists even here? Like why are they in God's holy inspired word? And then you, know, you start thinking about it and you're like, you know what? The entire New Testament kicks off with a genealogy. <laughs> and one that seems to go out of its way to point out sin and failures and outcasts rather than rush by them. Why? I think it's because of one word, hope. A hope. Hope that our sin doesn't have to end with God's judgment, nor does it mean that he will have nothing to do with us. Hope that in spite of the ruined people that we are and the ruin we make of our lives and other people's lives, that sin won't have the last word because God's saving purposes don't depend upon my performance because salvation belongs to the Lord. Hope because God will save his people in spite of what our sin deserves. Now that won't make any of those names easier to pronounce, but it will make you more eager to read them. Because when you come to, to realize the glorious truth that God didn't oust past sinners from his purposes, that means... God won't oust you either because God's salvation of sinners doesn't depend upon their performance but upon his son, Jesus Christ. And I love how John Calvin puts it. He says this, the whole of our salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. Therefore, we should take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. 
If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same. If inheritance of all blessing, in his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment, in the power given him to judge. In short, since every rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. And we've seen the glory of this truth clearly in Galatians, that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and no other. And our hope isn't in ourselves or anything we could do. We hope in Christ alone. And Jesus and all that he is, is ours by faith alone. But the false gospel peddled by the Judaizers to the Galatian church was you need faith in Jesus. Okay, sure. But you need to add to it. You need faith. It's just not faith alone. You must add circumcision and or the Mosaic law to your faith in order to be justified. So rather than finding the whole of salvation and every part of it in Jesus, the Judaizers' gospel was really a Jesus and you gospel. Jesus did his part, now you must do yours. And Paul's been vigorously defending the true gospel of Jesus' absolute sufficiency. And last week, we saw that he appealed to their conversion experience. When God saved them, and God saved them while they were Gentiles, and if they were male, uncircumcised Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit. Because the whole of salvation and every part of it depends on Jesus. And he appealed to their experience. He said, this is true because you received the Holy Spirit, which was evidence God made you His. He had declared you righteous, and evidence of that declaration is that you had His Spirit given to you. And God did so, not because of their works, not following any work, but through their hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith. We keep seeing this works faith in opposition throughout this argument that Paul is making. And we don't really know exactly what the Judaizers taught, but we can piece it together pretty well by how Paul argues. And it seems at least part of their argument was that Paul's gospel wasn't in line with how God justifies sinners. That this is some newfangled way that Paul's derived, which is why he first says, this has been revealed by God. This is a divine revelation of God. And I didn't choose to do this. God chose me to be this divine proclamation. Uh, proclaim this divine gospel. And now here, he goes, listen, they're saying that I am out of step with how God justifies sinners, and they must have been using the Old Testament law and Abraham to support their claim against Paul. And so what Paul starts to do here in our verses this morning is basically says, listen, the Old Testament isn't saying what they think it's saying. Have you ever um, said something in like public and one of your friends pulls you aside and says, that word does not mean what you think it means? That's basically what Paul is doing here. He's like, all right, they're, they're bringing up the Old Testament. Well, okay, let's go back to the Old Testament, and I'll show you what's really going on. 
And so he does so beginning in verse 6. Look at verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So if you're a note taker, I have three points this morning. They all start with the only way of salvation. Okay? The only way of salvation is faith alone. The only way of salvation is extended to all nations. And the only way of salvation is the only way of true blessing. So the only way of salvation is faith alone, extended to all nations, and it's the only way of true blessing. So first, the only way of salvation is faith alone. And it always has been. That's Paul's basic point. Just as the Galatians were justified, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith, so was Abraham. Now, Abraham was originally known as Abram when God called him in Genesis 12 out of Ur to a land God didn't tell him at first, but he said to a land I will show you that God would make him a great nation and bless him as well as all the nations of the earth through him. Now, as the years passed, Abram and Sarai had no children. So in Genesis 15, uh, Abram laments to God that he's childless and his servant is his heir. And God responds that he will have a child. He will have a son. And directing his gaze up to the night sky tells Abram to number the stars if he can. So shall his offspring be. And Abram, in that moment, believed God, and God counted his belief as righteousness. Now, we've already argued this in past sermons. We don't have time this morning, but belief is not a work. Okay? Hearing with faith is in opposition to works of the law. So hearing with faith and believing is all by grace. So that belief is not a work. That's Paul's entire point. It rests on this opposition of faith and works. So Paul says, here, Abram believed God and God counted his belief as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15. So the only way of salvation is not works, and it always has been not works. The only way of salvation has always been faith alone. And Paul demonstrates that. He shows it in two ways in verse 6. First, Abram believed God. The only way of salvation is faith alone because believed. Abram believed. Upon hearing God's promise, he believed God. And that belief in who God is and what God said was the basis of his justification. He was declared before God as righteous because he believed. Period. He didn't believe, get circumcised, and then was declared righteous. He didn't believe, do good works of the law, and then was declared righteous. He believed, and God declared him righteous. And often when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's not just that quote that's in view, but it's the entire context. And I think that's true here. Genesis 15 ends with God making a covenant with Abraham to fulfill this amazing offspring as innumerable as the stars promise. And after Abram gets the animals and bird God tells him to bring, and Abram cuts these animals in half, Abram falls into a deep sleep, and God, through a a picture of fire, walks alone through the pieces of the animals, which is a picture that declares God saying, if I don't fulfill my promise that I've made to you, I will be cut in half just like these animals. And the whole point is that God alone walks through the animals. God does not 
make Abram walk with him through it. Like, I'm going to do my part, and you got to do yours. It's while Abraham is asleep. I think that's a picture of Abraham dead. He can't do anything. He is unable to do anything that contributes to his righteousness. And God alone walks through the cut in pieces and says, if I fail to keep my promise, I will be cut in half like these animals. The fulfillment of God's promise, then, will not rest in any way upon Abram, but on God alone. And Paul quotes Genesis 15 to show the glorious truth that the fulfillment of God's promise rests entirely upon God and not Abram. Uh, elsewhere in Romans, Paul says this, Abraham, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised, is then counted righteous. Belief. As verse 6 says, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's the second way. The first way is belief. The second way is imputed righteousness. The only way of salvation is faith alone, because as we see through Scripture, it's belief that leads to imputed righteousness. The word counted, counted righteous, that is a financial term. It means credited, reckoned, counted. That, it, it means this, faith alone justifies, that is, that declaration that we are righteous in God's sight, not guilty. That justification comes when God credits sinners the righteousness they need to their account. It's counted, it's reckoned, it's credited, meaning it's not a righteousness from within. What is within? Nature. By nature, we are children of wrath, which means any good work we even could contribute would be corrupted anyway. We are by nature children of wrath. There is no righteousness from within. We need a righteousness from without. That's why historically this is called alien righteousness, which nowadays is like sci-fi, weirdo, like you get like big eyes and large heads coming at you. That, that foreign, that also has some connotations that aren't so good anymore. It's it, 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 outside. outside. We love outside. I send my kids outside all the time. I love it when they go outside, right? So I can drink my coffee in peace, right? We need something outside. Go outside. We need something outside to come to us. We need a righteousness not from within, but from without. Credited, counted to us. Because on the last day, all sinners, all people, will stand before God's judgment throne, the God who is almighty and holy. And the only way sinners will hear a verdict on that last day of not guilty is if a righteousness not their own is credited as their own. This is one of the major splits of the Reformation from Roman Catholicism which teaches that the righteousness sinners need to be counted not guilty, to hear that not guilty verdict, must be inherent to the sinners. In other words, we must be made righteous. Now, obviously, we stand here because we think that's false. We can show that in many ways, which I'll hopefully in a moment. But the, on the face of it, it's right here in the text. Abram believed God, and God didn't make him righteous. God counted him righteous. It's not inherent to him. It's given to him. He's clothed in it. So this is, rather than imputed righteousness, Rome teaches an infused righteousness. Their sinners are made righteous. That's the only hope we have. 
Rome teaches this starts at baptism, when the soul is infused with the grace needed to make you righteous. And as you progress in life through the sacraments, you become more righteous. This, of course, is very problematic. And even Rome knows it. Do you know why? Because no one gets to the end of their life righteous, which is why they created purgatory. Because even they know no one gets to the end of their life made righteous. And if you're not righteous, you're not going to hear a, guilty, uh, a, a verdict of not guilty. And so you go to this place where sinners are completely purified, depending on how long that takes, to finally meet God's standard of righteousness so that you will finally hear that you are justified. You see that? Not counted justified. You are justified because it's now inherent to you. So this is, this is the difference between infused and imputed righteousness. And the problem really isn't purgatory, although that's a problem, but it's actually Rome's doctrine of infused righteousness. Because if the starting point is wrong, you're going to end wrong. If the starting point is an insufficiency of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and saving work through the Holy Spirit, then you have to add to it. So we see, even though the Judaizers in Rome are saying different things, their starting point is actually the same, isn't it? That Jesus isn't enough. And friends, if Jesus isn't enough, there's no way around it, no one will be saved. There's no amount of good works that you can do to erase the debt our sin demands. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Period. And if that's it, then we all face judgment. And that is why the good news of the gospel is so wonderfully good. That God never planned for you to have to link arms with him and partner with him in saving you. God doesn't need you. All right, so his plan from the beginning was to be our salvation himself. Thanks, Jimmy, and everybody else. All right, I want you to... I mean, I don't need it, but I want you to feel it. You don't have to say amen. You don't have to, is what I'm trying to say. Just know deep down this is wonderfully good news that should fuel the rest of your week walking with this God who does not need you but came anyways. I mean, God never planned for you to partner with him. He planned from the beginning to be your salvation himself that God alone saves sinners to the praise of his glorious grace alone. And Abraham believed God, and God didn't make him righteous. God counted him righteous and did so before his circumcision, which is the other reason why Paul quotes Genesis 15. You know why? When does circumcision show up? Genesis 17. It's way before God even institutes circumcision that Abram's counted righteous. So these Judaizers are wrong. <laughs> I'm not preaching a different gospel. I'm preaching the gospel that's always been preached. Not after, but before anything good in us. While we were enemies, God, uh, Jesus died for us. And it was while we were still running from him that God called to us, called us to himself and saved us. 
It's not after we did anything, but before. And God counting Abraham righteous by faith alone shows that this always has been and always will be God's way of justifying sinners. He's not preaching a different gospel. It's always been this way. The only way of salvation isn't works, and it never has been. It's faith alone. Which is then why he goes in verse 7 and says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Uh, Have you ever heard anyone say big facts? Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've heard it. It's usually on social media, but people say it regularly now. It's a way people respond to like crucial world-changing news. The big facts means it's changed everything. Paul slaps down verse 6 as big facts and says it changes everything. If Jesus is the sacrificial, substitutionary, sufficient Savior, then you don't need to add anything to his saving work. So Paul says, no, it's a command. He says, these Judaizers are messing with you. They're getting your eyes off their Savior. They're causing you to doubt. No, no. Be confident. Be unwaveringly sure that you are a true son of Abraham if your faith is in Jesus. And that isn't patriarchal or sexist language. It's, it's inheritance language. It's sonship language. Sonship points to inheritance. All that belongs to Abraham would be passed to his sons. That's why Paul, or excuse me, Abraham laments in Genesis 15 to God. He says, my servant's my heir. He's going to get my inheritance. And you promise. Right? All that belonged to Abraham would pass to his son. So the glory of the good news of the gospel is that the promises of blessing that God gave Abraham wouldn't be just for his biological sons. But it would be for anyone, male, female, whatever ethnicity, it would be yours if your faith is in Jesus. So even though I'm male, this is good news for me. You know why? Because I'm not Jewish. It doesn't, it, I, I wouldn't have any part in this. It's not patriarchal or sexist. It's sonship language. It's saying, if your faith is in Jesus, this is yours. You are. In spite of what you were, you are. And that means you can be a part of God's favored, blessed people, even if you're not Jewish, and even if you're not male. Ethnicity or law-keeping doesn't make you a son of blessing. It's faith alone in Jesus alone. And this really does speak to us in the nitty-gritty of life. I I started this sermon by talking about Bible reading. Some of you did start a Bible reading plan on January 1st, and it's now January 29th. And I wonder, I should probably say it nicely, I wonder if you're behind. And even if you didn't start a plan on January 1st, you probably have in the past, And I wonder if you ever fell behind. And maybe if you're like me, you stumble across your plan in July and you realize, I'm I'm really behind. There's no way I can make this up. But But think about it in other terms. That's just a glimpse of our hearts when we start to think, I'm just not enough. I'm so far behind. I wonder if you look over this past week and see your failures. I wonder if you lusted after someone last week or maybe last night scrolling or if you've cheated on your taxes 
or now that your W-2s and all your stuff are rolling in if you're laying the groundwork to do so in a few weeks. I wonder if you got angry. I wonder if you said an unkind word. I wonder if you showed pride. I wonder if you didn't love God or your neighbor as yourself. And here's where the gospel rubber meets the road, doesn't it? What do you do when the Holy Spirit lays bare your sinfulness? When you wonder how you can even be a Christian. When you see your sin and you wonder if you finally out-sinned God's grace. And I don't know about you, I'm only 43, but the longer I live, the more I realize how sinful I really am. I thought I was, I thought I was pretty prideful and pretty selfish. Then I got married, and then I realized I didn't have a clue. Then I thought I'm doing pretty good. Then I had kids, and I realized I'm really, I'm really a rotten sinner. I'm really pretty selfish, which is why I kick them outside half the time. And not just the funny things, but all of it. I mean, when, you, when the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see the glory of God in the Scripture as you read His Word and as you walk with Him, you see, you see His glory and you realize how, I mean, how fall you really do fall short. And I'm only 43. What's another, if I get them, decades? Six, seven, eight, nine decades of sinful, sinfulness being on display. What do you do when you come to the end of your life? Well, I love these words from the pastor and great hymn writer John Newton. He wrote this in a letter to a friend towards the end of his life. He said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I find it interesting that even in his old age, when his memory is failing, what doesn't fail him is how great a sin is but also how much greater his Savior is. And you see, it, not only does the false gospel of works righteousness fail to save, it never gives you the eyes to see the glory and greatness of Jesus. So if you struggle with assurance, don't diminish your sin. Bring it to the cross. Don't diminish your sin. Excuse it. Rationalize it. Name it and know that Jesus is greater than your sin. And because he is, see that first word in verse 7 and cling to it. No, be unwaveringly confident that if your faith is in Jesus, you are, big facts, a true son of Abraham. Your, your license plate might say resident of Michigan, but you are a true son of Abraham. A son that's guaranteed to receive the inheritance of God's blessing. Not because of your performance, but by faith alone and Jesus alone. And we can say, yes, our sinfulness goes deep. But then praise God, his grace goes deeper still. And it is all of grace. It is all of grace. So secondly, the only way of salvation graciously extends to all nations. That's why verse 8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This only way of salvation is graciously extended to all nations. And a common caricature of the Bible says that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. But what does verse 8 say? 
The gospel Paul preached to the Galatians was the same gospel preached to Abraham. That God's plan to save a people for the glory of his name was always a plan for the nations of the earth to know the blessing of God's salvation, of grace alone, through faith alone, in God's Redeemer alone. That's why it says, For in Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, Paul kind of takes that phrase. He, he, it's a mashup of Genesis 12, Genesis 18, and Genesis 22. And Genesis 12 is God's initial promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through him. God restates that promise in Genesis 18, just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God again restates it in Genesis 22, after providing a ram uh, for the sacrifice in Isaac's place. In Abraham shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's promise to bless all the nations through Abraham is a summary, Paul says, of the gospel. What's that blessing? The blessing of believing God and being counted to you as righteousness. That's a summary of the gospel. God always intended, not just for Abraham's family, but for all the nations of the earth to have the blessing of knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That's why it's through Abraham. God started there with Abraham. And it's going to be through him that this blessing and the inheritance of it would be for all the nations of the earth. That's why as verse 9 concludes, so then are those who are of so then those who are of faith are blessed. Fact, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's saying, if Abraham received all this by faith alone, so will anyone, no matter their ethnicity or gender, whose faith is in the God of Abraham. It's very clear that we are not blessed because of Abraham or by Abraham, but along with Abraham. The blessing isn't Abraham, it comes through him. In other words, the gospel preached in the New Testament isn't something completely new or different than the gospel preached in the Old Testament. If we think that, we think God is like us. You know, when, when I try something and it doesn't work, what do I do? Well, hopefully I don't just keep doing it over and over and, and hope I get different results. I try something different. In one, in one way, that's what the Judaizers are accusing Paul of doing. God's way in the Old Testament right? Didn't work. And so Paul's saying, now there's this new way. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. This has always been the way. It's not like God tried something and now is trying something different because it didn't work. No, old and new alike, the only way of salvation is by faith alone. And that is extended to all nations. It is a little different. It's not completely the same. Abraham didn't know the name Jesus. But he believed in God's promise of a redeemer. He believed God. He believed. So the Old Testament saints looked forward to this redeemer and the fulfillment of God's promises. And even the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham wasn't hoping for a place on earth, but for a city with its foundation of God. So even Abraham wasn't trusting just for this earthly land, but something bigger. And they looked forward to their redeemer and the fulfillment of God's promises. And now we look back upon the Redeemer and the fulfillment of God's promises. For all their yes and amens are in Jesus. But the plan is the same. 
We believe by faith alone, and it is imputed. It is counted as righteousness. And so we share along with Abraham, the man of faith, the blessing of justification, which is not by works, but by hearing with faith. But I think there's something deeper than the immediate blessing of justification, which should be enough for us to just stop for a moment and sing some songs, because that is an amazing blessing, that, it, it, that we get this not guilty verdict, not by anything we do or don't do, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But that isn't the only blessing Galatians 3 points to. Justification by faith alone is the immediate blessing in Galatians 3. But as Paul points this to Abraham, I think it's part of a larger blessing. It points to a, the larger blessing. That immediate blessing brings, us, brings into view the big picture, in other words. God breaks into Abraham's life in Genesis 12, which is after, I know this is shockingly obvious, Genesis 3 to 11. <laughs> Now, what happens in Genesis 3 to 11? It's the story of the human race moving farther and farther east of Eden. We have these clues. Adam and Eve left, left east, and they just kept going east, farther and farther. They're going east. East in Genesis 3 to 11 is always bad. You're moving farther away from God's good purposes for which he created the world, farther and farther from God, and the ends for which he created us and everything. And all this... Uh, culminates in Genesis 11. This moving east, this moving farther and farther from God. When the peoples of the earth gathered together to build Babel, which is what they would hope would make their names great, it would establish their glory, and it would bring them security. They would never have to disperse, they could stay together. Everything they needed was right here. And it was this tower that would reach to the heavens. In other words, they wanted life without God but the life that God created everything for. They wanted everything about Eden, but without God. And so sin had caused so much destruction that they wanted to bring heaven to earth on their own. They wanted Eden, but rather than returning to God, they wanted to do it themselves. But the tower is so small, Genesis 11 ironically jokes, God had to come down to earth to see it, And I'm, I, sh I mean, Babel, I, uh, Genesis 11 is an amazing chapter, um, and I gotta, we don't have that much time for me to do another sermon right now. But it is quite amazing what God is doing in Genesis 11. He comes down. They have completely failed in their hopes to, to, to create an existence apart from God. And then God confuses their language, and thwarts their aim of never dispersing upon the earth. And it's right here, when human history has gone so wrong from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that God calls Abram. In other words, man's solution was to come together to reverse the curse. They wanted Eden, but they want to do it on their own terms without God. Man's solution was to come together and reverse the curse and work their way back to heaven. I'm going to build the tower to the heavens. They wanted Eden. But God's solution was different. He's like, we're going to have Eden, but not that way. He would reverse the curse and would begin to do so 
by graciously calling an idol worshiper out of sin and death and to himself. And that, thirdly, then, shows us the only way of salvation is the only way of true blessing. The only way of salvation is the only way of true blessing. We all long for paradise. We all want Eden. Everyone feels it deeply that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. But how will it become what it's supposed to be? When God completes what he started, that's when. God. The blessing of Abraham isn't just how God saves sinners. It is a part of it and a large part of it. The blessing of Abraham is also how God has started and promised to reverse the curse of all creation. Not by sinners working their way back to him, but by God coming down to us. And what we see at the end of Scripture is what God began in Genesis 12. By coming down and calling Abraham. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for a husband, coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's not us going to him, it's him coming down to us. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was, on, uh, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is God's anti-babble. We cannot work ourselves back to heaven. God will complete what he started, and he will come down to us. He will wipe away our tears. He will crush death. He will make all things new. And this reverse of the curse is through the one who also came down from heaven. When he left his throne to be born as a man, to live the life of perfect righteousness, we could not. And because he did so, he was able to have our sins imputed to him when he died on the cross in our place, when he was laid in our grave. But because this one bore our sins and they were not his own, God vindicated him. And Jesus rose to life on the third day, conquering sin and death once and for all. Amen. And that promise of this inheritance is not only for ethnic or male Israel. It includes that. But God's purposes have now extended beyond so that anyone from any nation on earth that turns in faith alone to Jesus alone are counted righteous. And have this blessing both now and forever. This blessing of God with us, not God against us. That's the blessing. And that blessing only belongs to the true sons of Abraham. You see, Paul's basically saying to the Galatians, your desire for this is, is not what's wrong. You should want to be a son of Abraham. The desire is not wrong. How you think you're going to get it is wrong. It's only those of faith alone in Jesus alone that are the true spiritual sons of Abraham. And so, friend, we also declare it. We know the world is not the way it's supposed to be. 
We all deeply long for Eden. But the way to it is not working yourself back to it apart from God. If your, friend, or if your faith isn't in Jesus alone, your pursuit of blessing will only end in more destruction and death. And so may you have the eyes to see the glory and greatness and the sufficiency of Jesus and turn to him in faith. And brothers and sisters, what about us? What does the hope of being a true son of Abraham do for your week? Well, if nothing we did brought us into it, then nothing we can do will kick us out of it. Now, some will then run to, well, then if that's true, then we can just sin. But Paul answers that objection, right? We don't sin so that grace can abound. We've actually been freed from sin. If you just keep on sinning, you're enslaved to it. Not, not that we will ever not sin. That's also not the point. You see, there's all these caveats. You, Satan's always pulling, pulling threads. You start going one way, he's going to push you a little bit to that. You start coming back, he's going to push you. So it's, again, it's not sinlessness. It's what we do with it. What did, what did Newton say? Yeah, I'm a great sinner. I just keep taking it to the cross. That doesn't mean I'm free to keep sinning, nor does it mean I'm never going to I'm a sinner. I have a great Savior. But true sons of Abraham walk in this. We walk in the light now. We're able to say no to sin. We're able to conquer it. Not because of our power, but through the Holy Spirit. We keep our eyes fixed on our Savior. And actually, that's actually the power to break sin. You know why? Because once we taste the, the beauty and the glory of Jesus, when you go feasting at sin's table, it turns to dirt in your mouth. And you don't want it anymore. And so we keep turning from the feast in the grave to the feast with Jesus. Because we're true sons. But knowing this, but knowing this, it's not us. It's not our performance. But it's our Savior. That both conquers sin and leads us out of it. It frees us from it. To be more and more and walk more with more with Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, may we walk as true sons of Abraham this week with all that we are and all that we have to the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pray. And Father, we, we are amazed at this. This truth, it, it's really true of us. Not because of our performance, but because of your promise and your power to accomplish and fulfill your promises to carry out your purposes and we pray more and more that we would live lives that display the, the glory of this truth that we are true sons of Abraham that we don't live for this world because our eyes are set on the new heaven and the new earth, life forever with you. And that as we live out that faith, that there would be opportunity among our neighbors and the nations for them to ask about the hope that lies within us, 
and that we can proclaim then your glories, who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. So we long for us to be more and more your people, to live on your promises, and do so for the praise of your glorious grace. Well, Father, we, we have nothing more to say, but thank you. What can we say? For it's you and you alone who have done it all. And we pray you would give us the grace to keep our eyes fixed on you until that last day when you complete what you started. And you forever are with us, never to be separated again, never to know sin ever again, to be able to see you, to see your face. We long for that day. For sin's grip to never come near us again. And to be completely renewed and glorified and live with you forever. So until that day comes, we pray you would keep us to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.